0: This morning, our message is entitled to the Father's house. We're in Luke chapter 2 again. We'll be finishing Luke chapter 2 this morning. The last verses of that chapter, beginning with verse number 41. Luke, as we preached before, is recording for Gentiles, Gentile readers. And he is emphasizing in these verses, passages how Jesus was born under the law according to Paul there in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 and this was done in order that he might fulfill the requirements of the law God gave the law to Israel at Mount Sinai and Jesus is going to fulfill that law given To Israel on Mount Sinai. Because Jesus is the true Israel. And this is absolutely necessary. In order for Christ to establish the new covenant. Ron talked about the covenant that God made with Abraham. That covenant is an eternal covenant. It is an everlasting covenant. God made that covenant with Abraham. And it is not going to be dissolved. Not, not ever. How will it be fulfilled? We read there in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Now, Jerusalem is that city. The earthly Jerusalem is but a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem that the Apostle speaks to us of there in the In Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is the city whose builder and maker is God. How do we get Abraham to that city? God established the old covenant with Israel. But that old covenant is not an everlasting covenant. It is a conditional covenant. And it was done in order to show the contrast between what we are able to do or not able to do and what Christ can do and will do and will do for His people. The fact that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God is is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the conditions for Abraham to be in that city. That's the point. And that's what we have right here in the passage that is before us. John the Baptist uh, it it tells us here that it, that this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said that with John the Baptist who protested when Jesus requested to be baptized by him. That's coming up in the next chapter. But uh, when Jesus asked to be baptized of him, he argued, no, I should be baptized of you. And Jesus' response was, let it be so now, for thus it becomes us, or thus it is fitting for us to fulfill righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus is already fully righteous. What is he talking about? Jesus is a representative of his people. What he does, he does for them. And that's what we have here. Uh, Fulfilling righteousness refers to God's specific plan for the redemption and restoration of his creation. And this involves specific steps that have to be completed in their proper order. He has to redeem a people. And these people must be unlike the children of Israel, which turned their backs upon God constantly and were constantly following the idols. He has to have a people who will love him with all their hearts, with all their souls, with all their minds. And that means they will honor him and they will obey him. First and foremost, Jesus made that clear. We have to forsake everything and follow him. This doesn't mean that uh, these other areas of our life don't have some significance or importance to us. They do. But they fit, they have to fit into the will of God. We don't do these things and then maybe, well, I might look to do the will of God there if it's convenient for me. But these other things are far more important to me. No, no. Jesus must take preeminence. He must have first place. Jesus said we must die to ourselves and then follow Him. So we leave the darkness of sin, the darkness of self, the darkness of of our own ambition. And because of Him, we are able then to joyfully walk in the light of holiness and justice. And this is all to prepare us to live pure lives in a pure world to come. Aren't you glad for this? Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And when we live in that city, it is going to be a glorious time. Light and fellowship, and purity, and holiness, and God will be in our midst, and we will see His face. Now, I say this to to introduce this, because when we read this passage, when you read these verses of our text, do you just find here an interesting story of Jesus' boyhood? And if so, you probably will miss two very powerful lessons that all of us have to understand if we're truly to have Christ's likeness. So let's get into it here. After noting that the parents of Jesus returned to Nazareth and after they had performed everything according to the law in His circumcision and in His dedication at the temple and and Mary's uh, purification... Luke now shifts the attention from the law to demonstrate the young Jesus' love for God and the resulting determination to pursue the, the will of God in the house of God for the glory of God. And again, nothing here is irrelevant to the main purpose of Christ's first coming, which is the cross. His first coming was to suffer and bleed and die, in order that his second coming could be in glorious victory. So we read here in uh, uh, verse number four, forty-one. Excuse me. This incident here is is introduced by the fact that during the childhood of Jesus, and here's a an important fact. His parents demonstrate their own consistent and faithful pursuit to the precepts and statutes that were set forth in the Old Covenant. While the nation itself failed so miserably, which caused them to be taken into captivity and to be dominated by the Gentiles, there were those who feared the Lord, according to Malachi, who Heart was set upon the things of God and God recorded that and and put it in a book of remembrance and promised them that the sun of righteousness would rise with healing in its wings. And this is what we have right here with Mary and Joseph, with Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, with uh, Simeon and Anna that we've already talked about. These were the godly remnant under the old covenant who feared God, who understood their weakness, who understood their inability and distrusted God with a covenant that was impossible for them or in anybody to keep. If people tell you, well, I'm a good person, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments, he's a liar. Nobody can keep the old covenant. Nobody. Except Jesus. And Jesus keeps it for His people, and that's how the that's how the old, that's how the old uh, covenant remnant, godly remnant, the godly remnant under the old covenant, could claim to be Christ's people, or could claim to be holy and righteous. They couldn't keep the covenant, so they, by faith, walked in the hope that one day one would be able to keep that covenant in their place. They looked for a Savior. They looked for a deliverer. As was promised in the Old Old Covenant Scriptures. So, verse 41 here uh, reads, literally in the Greek, His parents kept going year by year to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. This was a regular occurrence. According to the our reading here this morning they did it by their custom the verb translated here went every year is is the uh, imperfect is in the imperfect tense which means it was a regular performance and they did so with the with a sense of consistent, willing obedience. Mary and Joseph picked up there from Nazareth, which was not easy. It was a difficult trip. Traveling from Nazareth to Jerusalem every year to observe this important Jewish festival. Now, here's the the Old Covenant required this. The Old Covenant required that all males come to where the tabernacle was located Every year, and later, of course, the temple. But three times a year they were to come. Three times a year to observe the feasts. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16 tells us, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that He will choose. And then the, the, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was Passover and the Feast of Weeks, which was Pentecost, and at the Feast of Booths, which was Tabernacles. So Pentecost, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those three feasts. Which, by the way, themselves speak of the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And of our eternal rest in Jesus Christ. The first coming at Passover, the second coming at Pentecost, and the uh, tabernacles there are eternal rest. However, after the dispersion and the and Gentile world domination, it became impossible for these for this to take place. They were scattered everywhere, <laughs> and for them to come to to Jerusalem every year. Uh, or three times a year to celebrate these feasts became impossible. But ne- godly Jews made it a point to at least attend Passover celebration whenever possible. And uh, they they would do this, like Joseph and Mary here. And uh, here's another interesting thing about it is women were not required to attend. But we find they did, women did accompany Mary here, accompanies her husband, Joseph, to to this. And uh, and also the journey then to Jerusalem was coordinated because it was a difficult trip and because there was dangers on the way. They would get together in the community and make it a community affair, traveling together for the protection against bandits and so forth. So we'd have men and women and children then traveling together and they often separated uh, for the purpose of, of fellowship and companionship. And that accounts for the fact that Jesus' parents failed to notice his absence on their return trip. And that brings us then to uh, note here, Christ being one, the Son of the Law. Here's the two points that I, I mentioned earlier that we need to see uh, that what Luke is, uh, is teaching us here in this passage. For the first is to demonstrate here how Jesus Christ is the Son of the Law. He's a Son of the Law. What does that mean? We have a mystery here of the missing Son. And uh, we see the story, but we often miss the point. See, this is what I'm trying to say. Nothing is recorded about the childhood of Jesus between the, his age of approximately two, when the uh, Magi came to visit him, and now, and their return to Nazareth, and to now when uh, he arrives in Jerusalem there for the peace, feast of the uh, Passover, when he's 12 years of age. All of this in between here, is missing. We do have uh, a number of extra-biblical writers who have spoken of the childhood of Jesus, but most of them are fantastic, or they're they're fantasies. And one such uh, writing is that he, uh, that the child Jesus used to play there in uh, the mud and, and would shape birds out of the mud and then he would breathe life into those birds and then let them fly away. (laughs) Or healing people and uh, dead people, raising the dead, even in his childhood. No, he's not ready for that yet. And he won't be ready for that yet until he's in his uh, adult years. And even the text that's before us here has been... uh, perverted with some fantastic ideas. And I, I've heard this myself of, of people who tried to t- uh, tell us that w- that Jesus was sitting there and he's teaching these rabbis in the temple there, and boy, they just, whoa, this oh, man, this kid really knows something. Uh, read the text. There's not one thing said in here about his teaching anybody anything. He's not ready for that. That will not come until he is officially introduced in his adulthood. But what we have here is a son of the law. Around the age of 12 years old, Jewish boys became sons of the law. And their parents put them under the tutelage of rabbis to teach them the law. Here we have Jesus, the son of the law, sitting in the midst of the Jewish rabbis for three days listening and asking questions, intelligent questions, pertinent questions. Which I think reveals the depth of his own understanding. Because they were all amazed at his wisdom and understanding. This boy was a teacher's dream. Three days. Now let's look at the Passover here. Because the Passover is relevant to this too. Jesus is going to die on Passover. Do you know that? But here they uh, they go to the Passover. The Passover feast actually lasted seven days. It's actually a incorpora- an incorporation of two feasts: the feast of unleavened bread and the feast of Passover together, for seven days. They observed this during which the the attendees would eat uh, no bread that was leavened at all. At all any of the bread that they ate during this time had to be unleavened bread, and if anyone ate. Leavened bread during this time. The law was very specific. He must be cut off from Israel. Can you imagine this? You're no longer an Israelite because you ate leavened bread during the seven days of unleavened bread. That's according to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 15. The first and the last days of this feast were regarded as high days or or holy days, Sabbaths, Sabbaths, on which holy assemblies were held. That's why I believe that Jesus was crucified on Thursday, not Friday, but we won't go into that now. Because the next day, the following day, was a high day. It was the the high day, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast originated on the night and here again learn to read your bible and think of it in this way that all of the events that happened in the old testament all the stories all the uh, intervention of god into the into these stories it, are pictures of what will really transpire in the future. The exodus from Egypt is a clear picture of salvation. The Passover is a clear picture of salvation. And what God is going to do with His people in the future. So, where did it originate? It originated on the night the children of Israel were in, were being in bondage there in Egypt. And... God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh and he disputed over this. And God said, I'm going to judge them with ten judgments. At the end of the tenth judgment, they will let you go. That tenth judgment, that final judgment occurred on this night when the death angel passed through the land of Egypt and took the, the the lives of the firstborn of both man and beast. Pharaoh's own household was involved. However, God said that He would spare His people if they would do one thing: sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and then that night eat the lamb. Do you know why Jesus said, Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He is the Passover Lamb. The one pictured that night. And when we are, when we have the Passover lamb, the death angel passes over us. As he did to them in Egypt in order for them to obtain their freedom from Egypt. Isn't it interesting here how the Lord instituted then the Passover as a memorial to remind them of God's great deliverance. So in Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, we read, When your children say to you, notice when your children say to you, what was the Passover feast about? So that their children could learn something. Like Jesus sitting in the, the temple there among the rabbis. When your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's, the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared their houses. Do you see here another picture? This is a picture of the second coming as well. When Jesus Christ, who is the death angel, (laughs) he's the true death angel, comes on his second time, what's he going to do? He's going to judge the world. Both the, the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who have the blood on their houses will be spared. Those who don't have the blood on their houses will be judged at the second coming. Of Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus' conduct at this Passover. Was a necessary step to his becoming the true Passover lamb. Sacrificed for his people. He had to pass the test. And that's what he's doing. This was necessary for his people to escape the bondage of spiritual Egypt. The sinful world. And thus Paul admonished, and it's very interesting here. Paul's writing to a primarily Gentile church there in Corinth. And he writes to them, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's taking this Passover celebration, this Feast of Week celebration, this Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he's bringing it into the church and saying, You don't need to observe it like they did, but you need to see the spiritual truth that was there and observe that spiritual truth, which was cleanse out the old leaven that ye may be a new lump. Get rid of your sin. And as you really are unleavened, Jesus is our unleavened bread. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. We just celebrated the Passover this morning. This is a memorial this table a memorial we no longer need to celebrate the seven day feast in Jerusalem because the true Passover lamb has freed us to enjoy the freedom of the children of God not from Egypt but from this sin darkened world and from our own sinful selves so the necessity here it was to learn the law, and it raises a question here of Jesus' omniscience. Jesus was the God-man, fully God and fully man. If he was truly God, doesn't he already know these things? Was this just a show? Or did he really learn? I believe he really learned. And did he need to learn anything? And that here's the mystery. Did Jesus voluntarily surrender his ability to function as divinity? And I think, yes, he did. I don't know how he did it, but he's God. God can do anything. I think he voluntarily surrendered his ability to act divinely. You say, well, didn't he do divine acts? Yes. He did, but but understand something. When Jesus did anything as 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 a divine in a, in a divine act, such as raising the dead and, and healing people and so forth, he did so not as God, but as a spirit-filled man. It was the Spirit of God who continually led him and and worked through him to do the will of God, he was a man surrendered to the will of God perfectly. We need to learn that. On the one hand, for example, when he was teaching in the temple later in his adulthood, many re- were reacting to the to what he they heard from him, and they'd ask him, "How is it that this man has learning?" since he has never studied he he was not regarded as a rabbi who could claim that he was a rabbi who was under rabbi so and so and so like paul studied under gamaliel the rabbi gamaliel he could say yes i have studied under gamaliel jesus had nobody to say that of so that's how they ask him. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And now, here's Jesus' response. My teaching is not mine. I'm not the origin, a source of my own teaching. Where did it come from? The Father. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. That's John chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. And again, in chapter 14, verse 24, Jesus said, The word that you hear is not mine. He's not acting as God. He's acting as a man who is informed of God. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, Jesus taught... What Jesus taught was not his own teaching, but what his father showed him to teach. But there were these occasions where it appears that he was acting on his own with supernatural acts. For example, when uh, Nathaniel questioned him, how can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Jesus said to Nathaniel that he was Here was a truly righteous individual. He said, how do you know me? He said, before you came, I saw you under the fig tree. Wow. That was in John chapter 1, verse 48. How did he see him? Or when uh, he was... Sleeping in the boat and the, and the raging seas and the disciples were worried about sinking and and uh, he came up and he said Shh be quiet. And suddenly the storm was calmed. Was he acting on his own? So the first thing, see, is was he teaching his own teaching? No, he said it's from the Father. Now he's acting. Miraculous events. Was he acting on his own? And I would say, no. Not no. And that's partially demonstrated after Pentecost when the disciples themselves were performing miracles. Paul raised the dead. Was Paul doing it because he somehow was supernaturally qualified to do it? Uh Uh-uh. How did Jesus do it? The same way the disciples did it after Pentecost. Because the Spirit of God came on them. And Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. That is, I evaluate things and I conclude, make conclusions my conclusions are right because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. See, we can do the same thing. So then in His humiliation, He submitted Himself to the Holy Spirit. In Luke Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Thus, as a man, Jesus did not act on his own, but he, as directed by the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus could say, but concerning the day nor the hour of his second coming, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He voluntarily surrendered the exercise of his own attributes as of God. He was truly man. So his parents, let's just give, give the story here briefly. This, the parents there began their journey home. Now they weren't worried because of the child's absence due to his past submission and obedience to them. He was a good boy. He wasn't with them. They assumed he was with the other of his friends or relatives, and it was not until they set up camp that they found out he was not with the group. So first they began to search for him among their own relatives and acquaintances. That's verse forty-four. And when they did not find him, then they returned to Jerusalem. I, they were only gone uh, just one day's journey, but so now they returned. They came back and uh, to look for their for him and when they did not find him they did not find him where they expected to find him that's what i'm trying to say here they they didn't find him where they expected to find him when they returned to Jerusalem i don't know where luke doesn't tell us where that was but uh, when they didn't find him there they were astonished it says in verse 48 when they did find him in the temple And that assumes that he was not where they expected to find him. Why? That's the question. Why? Did they just assume that he was lost in play with other friends in the streets of the city? Like other children would be? Well, that would be the natural thinking. Knowing who Jesus really was, did it not seem to them natural to find him in the temple? But I think they were, like many, projecting their own expectations upon him. And such shows that even godly parents do not always have the spiritual understanding and perception that they should have. So when they found him, he was sitting among the rabbis, listening to them and asking a questions. Nothing is said of his teaching anything. The fact that the rabbis there were, uh, were the fact is rabbis were always ready to teach in, inquirers if you came up to a rabbi and wanted to be taught he was ready to teach this is but it's what's interesting here is jesus was sitting among several of them he, he this boy really attracted some attention Hey, guys, come over and listen. Look at this guy. I mean, there's several of them. And he's sitting among them. How did this happen? I just think they were just amazed. Because it says they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. There in verse 47. They were saying, hey, come over and listen. Look at this guy. This young man. These rabbis had never encountered such a lad. Here was a youth filled with heavenly wisdom, as Luke describes there in verse 40. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Boy, don't we wish this were true of all of our children. Now, the importance of this information is that it further proves Jesus' qualifications as the Messiah of God. These rabbis were amazed and astonished at him. Even though they later reject him. That brings us to the second point, and that's the Father's business. Mary was Jesus' mother, and Joseph assumed the legal responsibility for Jesus' upbringing. Their desire was to provide, protect, and to produce a godly young man, a son who would take responsibility in the world. They simply wanted to be good parents. So naturally, they wanted to get to the bottom of his behavior, which caused them so much concern for three days. I think that's interesting. Three days. We thought three days. We see three days, three days, three days. A lot. I think there's spiritual significance in that number. Three days. Of worried searching for him. Finding him, his mother asked, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He wants them to understand their concern. Why did you treat us like this? The focus is on us. We're parents. You're the child. Why did you cause, this, cause us this distress? The ESV here uses, translates the word son there. Uh, for the Greek word technon, which really means child. Child, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary was very tender in her rebuke, even putting it in the form of a question. She then asked whether he understood the great distress or anguish and torment that he caused them. But let us not blame Mary too much, for for to lose a child for three days in a strange city is certainly cause for distress. Her concern provided an important occasion for Jesus to let his parents know what his true priorities were. Mary's teaching, or sc- excuse me, Mary's searching references no particular place. The Greek words translated searching and literally means to seek everywhere or for something. Jesus asked, Why were you looking? And that's the same word in the Greek. Why were you looking? Only his word does not have the prefix everywhere. For me the implication was that he wanted them to direct their focus to a particular place his father's house and here again there's a translation issue the king james has my father's business the the article here stands alone my father's It stands alone. The Greek reader supplies the noun affairs to the sentence. And let let me just read it to you literally, transliterated from the Greek. Do you not know that in the affairs of the Father, of me, it behooves me to be me? In the affairs of the Father it behooves me to be me. Of me, it behooves me to be me. See, modern translator, translators understand that affairs of the father belong in his house. So thus, I must be in my father's house or I must be about my father's business. Did they not understand that his priority was to attend the affairs pertaining to his father? And note that Mary said, notice her what, how she said, Your father and I have been searching. Your father and I have been searching. But here Jesus corrects her. His real father was not Joseph, but the eternal God. Jesus was literally begotten, the begotten Son of the Father. Psalm 2, verse 7 I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Note also that Jesus uses the first person singular in his response. He did not say, Did you not know that I must be about our Father's business? It's not that Mary wasn't a believer. He knew that. But there's a relationship that he has with the Heavenly Father that is different from her relationship. Here he was letting Mary know that he was not just a human son, but the divine son of the Father. And here's another example of that in in John chapter 20 verse 17. When Mary Magdalene saw him at the the tomb, Mary clutched him. I think she she was down at his feet and holding on to his ankles. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Not our Father. And to my God and your God. Not to our God. Because we do not have the same relationship that Jesus has to the Father. Even though He is our Heavenly Father. And that's thanks be to His salvation. We can now relate to Him as sons of God. So we read there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Hallelujah. But we're created. Jesus was begotten. We're created. Jesus was begotten. There is a difference in our relationship to God the Father and, and that of Jesus. The young Jesus understood this. God was his father, and his relationship to God and his mission were not the same as that of his earthly family. Therefore, he focused on the necessity of his attending to the affairs of his father in his father's house, the temple. And that's an example to us, too. Are we busy about the father's house? And that is today the church. So then we read there in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. So in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, we read, we, that is the church, are a temple of the living god as god said i will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and i will be their god and they shall be my people well we're living in a day when people don't want to walk in the temple anymore well they want a relationship to god but they don't want it in in the house of god in the temple of god anymore and it's because this temple's this, this temple doesn't suit me. That temple doesn't suit me. This one over here doesn't. Uh, oh, how we need to, uh, a revival in these days. So are we making the Father's priority our priority? Are we attending to those priorities in the Father's house? Although His parents still did not understand it. It says they, 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 they didn't understand what He had told them. Nevertheless, he submitted to them as an obedient child. So we read there in verses 51 and 52, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider this truth together. There's some powerful truths here as they relate to Christ and relate to us. He is our Passover Lamb. And Lord, He has brought us to know You as Father. Were it not for His obedience and His pursuit of the will of God, we could never know You as Father. But glory to God, we know You. As father. Because our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Thank you. And I pray for all of, of your people sitting here this morning. That we may. Cherish this truth. And as we look for a new heavens and a new earth. Wherein dwells righteousness. Lord you are preparing us for that. Not preparing us for this earth, this life, although it does. But it really is preparing us for the life to come. And we thank you for that. Now, may Jesus Christ be lifted up praise and praised and adored. We kneel at his feet and we will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.